And the topic of today's conversation is what my guest calls spontaneous spiritual awakening experiences. I would probably call them cosmic consciousness experiences. These are subjective experiences characterized by a sudden sense of direct contact, union or complete non-dual merging or experience of oneness with a perceived ultimate reality, the universe, God or the divine. They can arise in response to some kind of practice such as meditation or, as in the case of my guests today, completely of their own accord. In fact, quite a few of the guests on this podcast have referenced such an experience as a catalyst to profound positive changes in their life. It appears that these kind of experiences are more common than we may think, and they can bring with them all kinds of challenges. I know that for myself, the experience, which was really a series of experiences, threw me into a good two years of intense turmoil as I grappled with maintaining my life commitments in the face of a profoundly changing inner reality. Back in the day, I really had no reference point as to what was happening, and I feel fortunate I was able to navigate it in an ultimately positive way. But I had friends who had similar periods, and they were less fortunate. And this is why I think the work of today's guest, Jessica Conay, is so important. Not only does she contribute to systems of emotional and psychological support for people experiencing spiritual emergencies, she has provided a number of links to resources around this that I share in the show notes, but she is also strongly focused on giving these experiences proper scientific attention and thus normalizing them for all of us. That this is not always easy is an issue we explore in some detail in the later part of the conversation. Jessica is a research psychologist specializing in spontaneous spiritual awakening experiences. She graduated with, with a master's degree in psychology from the University of Greenwich in the UK, where she focused her studies on induced and endogenous exceptional human experiences. With a passion to bridge the worlds of science and spirituality, her mission is to challenge the default pathologization of awakening experiences by helping to inform and encourage mainstream psychology to look beyond the current designated spectrum of normality and to encompass the transpersonal as something that is intrinsic to the human experience. And as an anthropologist with a very similar passion in my own discipline, I really appreciated um, that aspect of Jessica's work. She is also dedicated to helping individuals come to the realization of their highest human potential and fulfills part of this mission both as a kundalini yoga teacher and contracted leadership and empowerment coach. Jessica has presented her work at a number of academic conferences, including with the British Psychological Society. She also works for the Scientific and Medical Network, is a member of the Galileo Commission Steering Committee and a collaborator of the Emergent Phenomenology Research Consortium and Spiritual Crisis Network. She runs regular peer support groups for individuals undergoing spiritually transformative experiences in central London. And again, I'll be posting links to her activities in the show notes. And Jessica has also indicated that she's very happy to hear from anybody who um, might be experiencing the kind of experiences that we talk about in this interview. And her contact details will also be in the notes. I think that Jessica's work is very important and thoroughly enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you do too. And before we dive in, the usual reminder, 
Don't believe in anything, including what we talk about here. Experiment, research, and come to your own conclusions. I would like to start, I always like to start uh, to hear a bit more about what got people into this space. So, you know, you're doing work that is in some ways still, after all this time, quite groundbreaking, which is to try and get um, altered states of consciousness and particular, particular nature, which we'll talk about, to be understood and discussed in a scientific and academic way. Um, and, uh, but, um, you know, I, I can tell from reading your, your paper and hearing you talk that you're approaching this, I think, from someone who does it because you have, uh, you know, maybe had your own experiences of those states of consciousness. So it'd be really interesting to, to just get a bit of your background in that space and, um, yeah, where you've landed or how you understand what happened and how you understand what happened. Yeah, sure. Um, so uh, I always like to put this little disclaimer at the beginning of my story because it's just it's impossible to put these experiences into words. And I think by their very nature, they're ineffable. <clears throat> Sorry. So um, whatever I say will never do it justice. And it's still an ongoing process that I'm trying to make sense of. So but in any case, um, around six years ago, I um, woke up one morning um, having been an atheist the night before <laughs> and I opened my eyes after a very intense lucid dream um, and as I opened my eyes I scanned around the room and I felt this aliveness quality in everything around me it was as though everything was vibrating with a new life quality and I had this immense sense of interconnection and of oneness with the universe um, or with something greater than myself. But it was a sense that it wasn't just something greater than myself, but it was something that I was revealing from within myself. So it was something that existed both within and outside of me. And I felt this deeply embodied sense of, yeah, interconnection, oneness with this energy um, or consciousness or intelligence, as I like to call it, actually. And the intelligence, as I like to describe it, was a very, it's a very benevolent intelligence. It's something that courses through everything and everyone in this universe. Or so this is my perception of it. I don't like to say what other people's realities are. But in my eyes, I mean, it was a deep inner knowing of this true nature, of this true reality um, rather than a, a conceptual or a theoreticized idea or philosophical idea. Um, and I mean, there are so many aspects to my experience, but I just felt this immense sense of gratitude and um, empathy and understanding of the reasons why people were the way they were or are the way they are, including myself. So it really helped reveal deeper aspects of my psyche to myself and helped me gain a sense of, um, yeah, deep inner empathy um, for myself and for everything around me. And it, it kind of enabled me to make life choices that would be of service with a mission of being of service towards others. Um, so yeah, it really pushed me towards greater pro-environmental, pro-social behaviors. And mm. I mean, 
I don't want to take up too much time going over it, but up until very recently, I found it hard to even talk about the experience because it was so deep and so beautiful. And the most important thing that I've ever experienced in my life, it was like an absolute rebirth. And so it was very difficult to, to find the words to describe them, the experience, but also to not cry when I was describing the experience. So here you are uh, in a nutshell. <laughs> mm, well, I would like to unpack that nutshell a little bit because it's very intriguing to me. You, you, you said you were an atheist the day before. Yeah. Were you engaged in any form of I don't know, meditation. Was there anything unusual that had happened before this experience or anything that had in any way might have led to it? Mm, that's a good question. Um, I think that everything in life leads to a point. But in terms of actual triggers, there were no triggers that I could really pinpoint. Um, so it was very much random and non-intentional. I wasn't, uh, you know, taking part in any spiritual contemplative practice before my experience. Um, I had just recently, a month before or so, moved to Madrid for the second time. So um, I was in a new-ish environment because I had lived there several years earlier prior to the experience. But in any case, it was a completely new uh, kind of, you know, new environment um, to some extent and I had a new job and I was making new friends so in that sense it was almost like the way I like to see it is that rather than having your environment imprint back on you an idea uh, so rather than the environment giving back or feeding back what you've always kind of experienced within that environment for me it was like a new it was like imprinting onto my new environment one more time and I don't know if that makes any sense. It makes sense in my mind, but um, I feel like there was almost a blank canvas through yeah, which I could yeah. do something new, you know. But again, who knows really what what happened that morning and and that night, the and, night before. And you said there was a lucid dream um, before the experience. I mean, was there? Could you see a relationship between that dream? Were you having um, something in that dream that was already leading you towards this new perception of, of life? Yeah, actually, although I don't tend to relate the dream or even talk about the dream that often, um, because I see this as a sort of separate experience altogether. Um, but yes, it may, my experience may have been triggered by, uh, or was preempted or preceded by a lucid dream, which was incredibly profound. Um, it was like the big dream, you know, um, that one has in a lifetime. Uh, and in my dream, so I don't know if you've ever watched the film Waking Life, but it was very similar to the film oh, Waking Life. I haven't yet. Uh, so I was sort of floating through in my lucid dream. I was floating through this kind of spaceless area. So, I mean, it wasn't like an environment that I could, you know, I couldn't tell you what the environment was. It wasn't like a natural space or a set of rooms. It was just, I was floating around in space, in a space. And talking to a number of different people that I knew, in, I knew intuitively that they were into, you know, intellectuals, great thinkers. So philosophers, mathemati mathematicians, um, psychologists, uh, physicists. So I knew them to be intuitively those kinds of people. I was speaking to each of them individually, asking them the same question over and over again. And that question was, what is the meaning of life? Okay. And, um, 
I think it's important to note that I had, whilst I had never considered myself as being spiritual before the experience, I'd always been uh, a real deep thinker. So I like to think about the big questions of existence and I was quite an existentialist uh, <laughs> before my experience. So, um, so always questioning things um, and always, I always carried with me a sense of wonder but any, anyway, so that manifested in my lucid dream and I was walking up to each individual character, asking them the same question. What is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of life? And each of them was, were giving me individual separate answers to that question, answers that I could have never come up with. Or at least, it, you know, because I was lucid in my dream, I knew this to be a dream, mm. but I was myself, fly me. I mean, this is these answers are so eloquent and they're, they're so fantastic and awesome. I could never surely come up with these answers myself, particularly as I didn't know anything about spirituality before then. And um, yeah, they were giving me incredibly complex kind of responses. Um, and, and I sort of started to question during the course of my lucid dream, like maybe the answers are already within me actually. And I reached the last character and I went up to him and I said, what is the meaning of life? And he said, just wake up. And that's very similar to the film Waking Life. So I know I was primed to have that that kind of dream through me watching the film several weeks earlier. Okay. Uh, but it's incredible how that, you know, from him saying wake up, me waking up in real life, um, I woke up to a new reality. Like yeah. genuinely. And it, again, it wasn't a, a thought idea of a new reality. I opened my eyes and quite literally, you know, the colors around my room, the shines and the hues, everything was so vivid and came alive. And the, the feeling of the bed sheets against my skin was so uh, exquisite. And um, I just remembered looking at the glass of water next to my, on my bedside table and feeling this sense of awe and like wow and looking at the, the the walls and feeling as though they were breathing almost it was it was a very kind of psychedelic experience and um yeah again that was that was so that's the lucid dream I suppose but yeah that's profound I mean I feel really moved just hearing that description it's something really profound and I, I wonder did you write down all the answers you got from those different no. characters <laughs> Uh, I've been asked this before, and I can't actually remember. Yeah. Actually remember what they said. The last uh, one is probably the most important, right? Just wake up. It's, uh, <laughs> wake up, and I woke up, and um, I think because I was so engrossed in this altered, I was in an altered state when I woke up. You know, yes. um, or rather, in a in a deeper state of consciousness, as I like to to in you know visualize it or envision it. Um, I wasn't too preoccupied by the dream. I was more it was a, a deep sense of presence and of like acceptance of this present moment. So I, I suppose from that moment onwards, I stopped really thinking in the past. So even relating to my lucid dream, I obviously had woke up with this mem with this, I with this memory of the, of the dream and this like sense of interest in the dream, but it, it, the actual experience itself post waking up overtook everything in my life. And it's only afterwards that I started to think about, the correlation between the lucid dream and my actual experience uh, mm. in more depth. Yeah. And so then, so then what happened? You got up. Uh, I mean, did you, it sounds like the sort of state where you could have quite happily just laid there for uh, some indefinite time, absorbing all these new perceptions. Um, 
did you go into your get on with your daily life and the, the, the experience faded or did it stay with you um, after that? So that morning when I woke up, you know, I had this experience and I, yeah, I cried for, well, it felt like hours. It was probably minutes because time and space distorts when you're in that time, in that mind, mind frame. Um, and I, I cried and I cried and I had, just this great sense of awe and I felt this like my cognitively my 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 ideas that like an influx of ideas started to flood my mind and I just felt so incredibly creative and so uh, at peace and uh, that state of deep interconnection of one you know feeling of, of oneness of of bliss of elation of gratitude of um you know I don't know, heartfelt existence that lasted for many months, actually, and up to a year, I would say. That was the peak of my experience. Mm. Obviously, you know, the first two weeks were the most intense, and then it sort of started to, I don't want to say wane, because I was still very much in an altered state of several months into the experience. But, you know, with time, it gradually started to form part of my everyday existence. Yeah. And it was less of a sort of shock, because I'd like, you know, I actually think that it, it traumatized me in a good way, um, so to speak. So I feel like my brain was incredibly plastic in that moment. So mm -hmm. I don't actually know, you know, fully what the neurobiology of these experiences are, but it definitely felt as though my brain was being almost reconnected with its, reconnecting with itself. And um, yeah, I don't know, like it's, yeah, it shifted my my state of consciousness in a, yeah. in a big. Yeah, well, I think I I do wonder, you know, I, I, when we have often when people first start having sort of spiritual experiences, they are very impactful, very profound, and then later in life, um, it doesn't seem that way so strong anymore. But I think it's just because it becomes a new normal, right? Like it's it's uh, you, that becomes the way you see the world then, and um, you don't need those shaking up experiences. And, and thank God for that, because it would be, I mean, it is a beautiful state to live in, but it, you know, if we're to live in this sort of Western society, which isn't really conducive uh, or supportive of these kinds of experiences, it can be quite um, triggering for people to live in that state, but in this world. Um, yeah. By this world, I mean this society, because there are other societies that perhaps are more, are better containers for these experiences and better facilitators and uh, supporters of these kinds of experiences. But just before we move on, I just want to make a point that in terms of my, um, you know, everyday earthly sort of <laughs> experience, so to speak. So in terms of working and relationships and so on, things were pretty much the same. If anything, I felt like um, I had, I felt like I was unfazed by the more negative experiences at work so I was more able to deal with with issues and with problems that would arise you know interpersonal issues perhaps um with my boss or with a colleague um I felt much more able to navigate and to just let go I didn't feel this uh, attachment towards uh, anything really um just this great sense of overwhelm of, of bliss um in my everyday existence and I even got a promotion uh, several weeks into my work. Um, so that's sort of, in some ways, I don't want to say proves because this is just one account, but I'm, I know I'm not the only one to have experienced 
a very positive spiritual experience that actually led me to towards better sort of behaviors and even more able to 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 work and more able to be productive and yeah be around people so because yeah. often we idea that you know you have this experience and then it's incredibly difficult to reintegrate into the world and this is often the case but it's not always the case yes yeah i think that's right i mean it, that, that does happen and that was my experience in a way that that when i first started um you know when i had not exactly the kind of experience but similar experiences i i really struggled for a while to I wouldn't say function because I I did my studies and I uh, you know I did all the things I needed to do, but I I did prefer my own space a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. But um, so at that time, I assume, given that you know that hadn't really been a subject matter on your mind, you weren't studying altered states of consciousness or anything like that. Um, that grew out of your new sort of found uh, perspective of the world then did it your your studies and your research now exactly exactly so I was actually working in cultural heritage preservation and art production mm-hmm. and I was training to be a, a an art curator um that was my dream job up until that very morning mm. <laughs> um, and uh but after my experience I when during the integration phase, actually, uh, so several months or even a year after my experience, I started to, you know, want to try and find answers. Like, who else has had this experience? Uh, where can I find community? Um, what is the science behind these? You know, what's the psychology? What's the neuroscience behind these experiences? Not that I felt that I needed to know the answers in order to for them to validate my experience because I knew intuitively what this was and how meaningful it was to me. But still, you know, I mean, I think it's important for us to have certain answers um, when we're trying to make meaning and make sense out of big experiences. And I couldn't really find very much online um, in terms of spontaneous experiences, but even psychedelic experiences, uh, psychedelic research was still, you know, rather underdeveloped uh, six years ago. And in the last six years, it's really, really blossomed. So now you'll find a lot more online um, on yes, psychedelics, near-death experiences, out-of-body experiences than, than you would have prior to, to six years ago um, or around that mark. So, yeah, so during the integration phase, I couldn't really find very much and I was really intrigued by it. And I thought to myself, started asking myself some, some big, you know, some questions like why, um, why are these topics tabooed why can I not find very much online why why am I struggling to to describe or discuss these experiences with people who might not have had the experience you know what is it what what is it within me that's stopping me you know where's the inner stigma that's stopping me from expressing the 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 most beautiful thing that's Mm -hmm. ever happened and that all made me want to um made, made me want to explore the experience from a psychological perspective and also explore it from a psychological perspective in order to um, bring these experiences or raise awareness around these experiences within mainstream psychology because at present the experience is typically pathologized by default um, and uh, and yeah so it arose no. from a yeah. Well, I guess the, the the other the other space is that they become incorporated into some kind of religious 
exactly. or spiritual or mystical framework, right, and understood from that lens. Totally agree. And uh, and actually, that was those were the only sort of blog posts that I could find online where sort of new agey uh, blog posts of, uh, you know, which were they were helpful to some extent, because I realized like, oh, I'm not alone in having having this experience. There are other people, but it was, I have an issue with people kind of putting forward an idea and then saying that that's the only you know, giving a framework and saying this is the only framework through which you can understand these experiences. I, I kind of have an issue with that unless it's a personal uh, account or a, a personal interpretation. Uh, and that's really most of the things that I was finding online were, were you know, that was a sort of narrative that people were coming at it with. Um, and uh, and so, yeah, I just felt that there was a, a need for a shift and a need for a bridging of the worlds of science and spirituality. Yeah. And so then let's fast forward. You you went and studied psych you shifted from your art cultural, you know, studies to, to psychology. Yeah. And um and how how was it how were you able to uh find how how easy was it for you to find someone in that space to actually enable you to pursue these studies um in the way that you wanted to, given that, as you say. They're often pathologized. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think one thing led to another. Um, luckily, I, um, by, you know, by just speaking to to a, a handful of people who I knew might understand my experience and so on, they sort of led me in the direction towards David Luke, Dr. David Luke, who I then ended up collaborating with on a paper, and who ended up being my supervisor at, at the university, and is the reason why I chose. Greenwich University because I knew he was uh, teaching there and he led is still leading actually a module on uh, exceptional human experiences so uh, I realized that yeah it was time for me to return to London uh, and pursue this uh, this master's degree um, with a wonderful human being who who ended up teaching me a lot mm. yeah and along the way, did you, um, I don't know, have you, have you, uh, did, did this experience lead you to pursue different spiritual practices or any kind of techniques? I mean, have you pursued, have you sort of had a drive to try and have the experience again, to replicate it or to uh, yeah. uh, generally experiment with altered states of consciousness in other ways? Yeah. And what's interesting about these experiences is that they, they sort of force you to live in the present and to feel this sense of non-attachment in many ways. But when you start to integrate the experience, what can arise and what arose in me is this sense of attachment and of wanting to re-experience that peak altered state. Even though I never entered a depressive state or anything like that, I was perfectly, um, you know, fully functioning and everything. But I just felt this deep and someone described it to me recently as a spiritual uh, homesickness, actually. Mm. And it's, it's very true. I did feel this way. And I am um, a year into my experience. I, I felt this sense of longing, um, even though I was still very much riding the wave, but I wanted to feel that peak again. And uh, I entered the world of Kundalini yoga, which is a form of yoga, which is very much, um, focused on the breath, focused on mudra, so hand postures and eye postures and eye movement. 
um, mantra chanting and so on. So it's a really holistic and profound form of yoga, which essentially all forms of yoga should be profound and holistic, but I think they've sort of lost their meaning, particularly in the West recently, um, since the 60s, 70s. Um, But yeah, I found Kundalini Yoga and it really helped elevate me in times of, in the times that I felt that I needed elevation and it helped ground me as well in times when I felt that I needed the grounding. So um, it's been a very special practice for me, and I ended up undertaking a yoga teacher training course a year after that. So two years after my initial experience, I became a teacher. Um, and I now teach regular classes. And um, I'm a great advocate. Uh, great advocate? No, wait, that I don't think that's what I wanted to say. I'm a great, um, yeah, admirer. And um, yeah, I very much enjoy Kundalini and teaching it because it's just so beautiful. Um, yeah. Mm. So that's the spiritual practice that I tend to follow, but I don't like to um, focus on one soul um, path, spiritual path. I know that that can be very, very helpful to many, many people. Uh, But for me, it's about finding elements of different practices and integrating them and incorporating them into my everyday existence. So even just bringing in a sense of mindfulness into every moment or or so I try obviously it's not always possible and I'm only human but I try and live by that kind of standard of just bringing it back to my experience my my senses and my my uh, immediate experience yeah 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 I think that's such a powerful foundation right to to bring yourself to the present that seems to be almost like the foundation for any um any spiritual practice that uh, helps us connect more with ourselves and with the world on, on many different levels. Yes. Um, yeah. And so then I'm curious if Kundalini Yoga is what called you. Um, well, there's a couple of things. I, I noticed in your, in your article that we'll talk to, your research paper that we'll talk about um, a bit more in a moment, you make a distinction between the spontaneous spiritual awakening experience and the spontaneous Kundalini awakening Mm -hmm. i think is the um the the other one um and uh from what you describe your experience your initial experience was a spontaneous spiritual awakening right it was it was a i I didn't i mean you haven't mentioned anything about intense energies or anything like that uh was there anything like that the 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 classic maybe you could just briefly explain you know, what, yeah. a, what a spontaneous kundalini experience looks like and then compare it to what you experienced. I mean, we're still trying to unpack the differences or if there are any differences between kundalini awakenings and spiritual awakenings. Um, I suppose, typically speaking, and in yogic and tantric texts, typically, and what transpersonal psychologists have typically referred to as kundalini awakenings tend to be more physical and more energetic, so to speak, uh, than typical, again, um, we're just postulating here, we don't really have the answers, but spontaneous spiritual awakenings. Um, so what we wanted to understand is if in, in our research paper was just a small sort of uh, uh, sub-question, uh, was we wanted to understand whether there were, in fact, any perceived differences between what people refer to as kundalini awakenings and spiritual awakenings. And in fact, we did find that there was a correlation between the physicality of the experience and what people referred to as kundalini awakenings um, or personal kundalini awakenings. 
However, what we also wanted to understand was whether there was a correlation between the physicality of the experience, so the intensity of the physical experience, and the negative, uh, the p- possibility for negative experiences. And we didn't find a correlation there, um, which is, you know, that's fine. I mean, it yeah. was all anecdotal evidence anyway. So this was sort of just a preliminary uh, exploration at what the terms mean for a majority of people. And again, this is just one study. So we need to do a lot more work to understand uh, whether there are any difference, you know, clear differences between both terminologies. But what I like to see Kundalini awakenings are as are a sort of branch of awakenings, basically. That's how I view them. But yeah. everyone has their own interpretations. Yeah. I mean, I mean, maybe just to be clear, because if somebody's listening who hasn't ne- maybe necessarily had an experience, it might all seem very abstract or, you know, so so uh, when I think, and, and I think we all hear these terms through certain lens, right? Like Kundalini comes with a whole, it's got it's got that cultural background coming from the, in the yogic yeah. traditions. Um, I guess, uh, you know, there's been a couple of times um, where I've had the, which I, would call a kundalini experience where there was intense heat developing yeah. at the base of my spine and then it would move up and I could feel that. And in one case, I actually felt quite nauseous from that effect. And then there would be an intense uh, energetic sensation either around the, the my forehead area or the crown of my head or both. Um, and you know, they, they were slightly different, two different experiences, but in one, it felt almost like a, like a, my head opening up completely. Um, and so those are quite, quite intense experiences, right? That's kind of the, uh, it can be quite, quite ne- feel quite negative, but also quite blissful. So it really depends. Yeah. On- yeah. It didn't. So in my case, it didn't feel, it felt scary the first time around, the second time around, not, not, but the first time around it felt scary, but then that it just became blissful. Um, yes. But, uh, but so I'm curious, so I guess I'm curious with your first experience, you know, when you woke up in that morning, was there anything like that pulsation around the top of your head um anything that might have given you that sense of energy having yeah 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 exactly so typically speaking you know when people refer to kundalini awakenings what springs to mind in in my mind is um is this sensation of of heat or of energy rising from the base of the spine as you described all the way up to the crown of the head or the third eye point um but yeah, some people report feeling tickling or prickling or, or tingling in the extremities of the body, so the hands and the feet or the forehead. Um, and others, you know, experience involuntary positioning of the hands or uh, or involuntary yoga positionings or physical positionings of the body. Uh, for me, um, in my own personal experience, I had, I didn't feel any energy rising. I had this really, really deep, sensation of um light emanating from my heart space the third eye and the crown of my head accompanied by a a very very physical um almost like a a squeezing of those centers so i can't it's a it's an experience i mean I, i can't sort of relate it to anything else that i've ever experienced but it was almost like a cracking open of my heart so it was a feeling of like 
I don't know, like a, my heart was being squeezed. My third, the point between my eyebrows felt like it was being squeezed and the crown of my head felt like it was being cracked open, as you described as well. Um, very, very, very present were these physical sensations. Very physical feeling, right? Even though the, yeah. Very. Um, mm. But I still, yeah, I don't know. I mean, again, the terminologies are so uh, debatable and they're so... Um, subjective, really. I mean, they can be interpreted in a number of ways. And because we've never, you know, sat down and, you know, as a consent, uh, formed a consent sort of understanding around what it means to have a Kundalini awakening versus spiritual and whatever, these are all just terms that we can, I suppose, into that we have been into use, intertwining and into using. So uh, yeah. if that's even, a, yeah. 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 And I guess it sounds like you're with your study that's partly what you're working towards is to actually try and unpick mm. those experiences, maybe see if there is a difference, maybe there isn't a difference and they're just sort of shades of a common theme. Um, yeah. I mean, I, you know, my, my, my own um, understanding and interpretation is that all of these experiences involve some kind of energetic process um, that shifts our perception, right? That our shift of perception has an energetic component and sometimes it's more intense and sometimes it's less intense yeah um, yeah when you when you say energetic do you just mean like um yeah what do you mean by that exactly because it, it's a it's a really good point and i feel that i might agree but i don't yeah what what exactly yeah. do you mean by <laughs> well that is a good question because it's such a subtle um uh you know because we don't really have a, a, a a proper understanding yet of how these energies seem to work in our body. But I guess, um, you know, there is no doubt, I feel, when you have, when people have these experiences, when we start feeling energy, then we know that we have this energy that resides, that is in our body, that moves through our body, and that is sometimes more present than others. Mm. And, um, uh, you know, in the framework that I work with, uh, we call it bioenergy. It's you know, chi or or, or ki in, in the Eastern tradition, um, and that uh, something about that energy becoming more active, shifting. You know, it seems it seems to be something about it rising up, and about these these points around the top of the head and the forehead and the heart also becoming active is often linked with altered states of consciousness and yes. um uh you know the 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 times when um I, I i and i don't have a i feel this is a really it would be really fascinating space to for us to try and study properly once we can get to the stage of approaching these things in a scientific way you know is to try and understand the relationship between for example psychedelics and these yeah. energetic systems, because uh, it's been a long time since I've, I've um, experimented with the psychedelics, but my certainly the last time I did, I was very aware that it, my, the same areas in my energetic system became active as yes. they did in my spontaneous, um, you know, in spontaneous experiences. Yeah. Uh, the relationship between our body chemistry and the energetic system, I think, is really you know, important area to, for us to try and understand. 
absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. Um, but it is important. Yeah, I think most of these experiences are accompanied by physical sensations. But I think it's important for us to mention that not all of these experiences are perceived in the body. Although maybe the most commonly reported is physical sensation is this sense of the third eye opening or tingling in the third eye. So yeah, perhaps, yeah, it would be very interesting to investigate this further, I, I imagine. Mm. And I, yeah, I believe. Um, but yeah, and in terms of the the physicality of it, it's interesting because when I feel attuned or when I'm meditating or I feel like I've, I've gained insight, I feel this sensation in the third, in my third eye. And you probably feel the same way, Kim. I don't know, yeah. but it's amazing how it's definitely, there's definitely a correlation, as you say, between the, the feeling of the third eye and, or certain feelings in the body and certain mental states. Yeah. 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 Definitely. Um, so so yeah so that so that sort of touches on the the paradigm my, my question around the paradigm that you use or that you've acquired and i don't know whether you've been influenced you know so for example for me when i when i started um you know for me it started with meditation i had no expectation i had never studied any of this stuff um a friend of mine introduced me to meditation and then i started having many different altered states of consciousness including the kind of kundalini experiences and I had no reference points. So I was kind of grasping, you know, I went to Buddhist groups and I read Hindu stuff. Um, and then in the end, I, I sort of, you know, what sat most sort of best with me was this particular paradigm from consensiology that I, you know, it's Brazilian framework that works with, has perception of different bodies that we have that are involved in out-of-body states and the energy body that, you know, and, and they all relate to different altered states of consciousness. So now when I when I talk about these things and I, you know, that's kind of the 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 lens through which I filter uh, yes. and try and make sense of things, right? And so I guess I'm curious, did you have a lens? Did you create, did you did you acquire one? And and what does it what does it look like? Yeah. Um no, I mean I don't have one lens per se. Um but I yeah, I've sort of acquired bits and pieces from different bits of literature, um, different kind of more scientific texts, understandings. Um, uh, yo obviously, yoga is a good framework through which to understand the experience. Um, but I don't feel that I necessarily pertain to one specific framework um, or view it through one specific framework. And I certainly didn't have a framework through which to interpret it at the time of my experience either. Um, but what I did find useful, because I think it is useful during the integration phase to sort of be able to relate to different texts and understand things better through lenses, um, I just found that the literature of um, people like Alan Watts and Aldous Huxley in his later years, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I found that those books to be very, you know, very, very useful to me. Um, and then more modern psychologists who do some investigation into these experiences also helped me kind of understand the experience or at least validated my experience yeah. in, a, in a greater way, such as people like Steve Taylor, but even Jules Evans, who wrote an amazing book um, that I read 
I think a year or a year and a half after my experience called The Art of Losing Losing Control. And I thought that was, you know, just wonderful. But yeah, um, yeah. And, and just reading up about, you know, Buddhism and, and certain forms of Hinduism, yoga, tantra, um, all of these kind of paths came into my life. And I, I, I have integrated aspects of each path and of each yeah. into, into my framework. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, let's, let's jump into your research um, project. And um, so the article that you've published uh, together with Dr. Luke um, is called Spontane- Spontaneous Spiritual Awakenings, Phenomenology, Altered States, Individual Differences and Well-Being. And um, you, I guess I'm curious, you had about 150 people who um, went through, who, who participated uh, and went through, you know, many different questionnaires, essentially, which I'm curious about. I'm going to ask you about in a minute. But, um, uh, yeah, could you talk a bit about the range of experiences? Because that's something that really intrigued me, this this um, spontaneous spiritual awakenings. Um, I mean, your experience, I find, is, is remarkable because, uh it just really that I mean it can't doesn't get more spontaneous than that, right? It just you just wake up. <laughs> Whereas in my case, you know, I was meditating, so yeah. I was doing something that is designed. I discovered later, right, to 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 move towards those kinds yeah. of states, experience. So I was curious with the people that you in your sample or in your in your study, to what extent? I know you excluded drugs uh, yeah. in the process. But uh, yeah, to what extent were there people that had, was were like you? It just happened, and to what extent were the people doing some kind of practice—yoga, breath work, you know, meditation? Yeah, good question. I mean, the actual question we asked to recruit participants was: um, Have you ever had a strong experience of a profound spiritual nature in which you suddenly and non-intentionally felt in contact communion? or communion with something that is considered to be an ultimate reality, God or the divine? Have you ever felt that your ego suddenly transcended beyond an ordinary personal identity in time and space and that you became one with the universe? So in order for people to participate, they they must have had one of those kinds of or, or that kind of experience. Now, the way that the question was phrased would imply that there were no triggers, really. But of course, you know, we can't sort of filter and find out whether people were actually practicing something at the time. But the way that right. it was phrased was sort of mitigate that kind of group, although equally I mean, is fascinating. To, I mean, but yes, it, it, it says it, unintentional, which, which, you know, when I mean, when I was meditating, I wasn't intending to have that experience, right? I did not know that that was, I didn't have that goal. So I would have still right. said, no, I, I didn't have that. So I would have still said I had the experience arose unintentionally. Yes. Um, exactly. So people didn't then specify, like, did you ask them what were you doing at the time? Something like that? Was that part of the? No, we didn't. But we asked them what their preceded, what they felt preceded their experience. So again, okay. it's intentional. But in any case, what we what we really wanted to understand was, because we had a question in there asking whether they had the experience 
with no prior trigger as well. Yeah. We asked them that question to get them to recruit them. And then we asked them what their what they felt preceded, what they felt was a significant factor that preceded their experience. So within there, that was spiritual contemplative practices, uh, sacred sexual intimacy, um, you know, um, fasting and homeostatic uh, imbalance. Uh, so through sleep deprivation, intense exercise and so on. Uh, and, you know, spiritual literature, contact with nature and so on and so forth. Past use of psychedelics as well. So we asked them this question, these questions, or this question with a, a number of different responses that it could tick. Um, including no discernible trigger. So from that, we were able to understand who had had, uh, who was actually practicing or who was not practicing more or less something yeah. at the time. Of their, yeah. And, and but in any case, your... what was important. Yeah. In any case, what was really important to find out was whether they had had the experience, like you said, non-intentionally and randomly because like you say, it can still be spontaneous, but you can you might be meditating or sitting down or contemplating. And that's still as valid. Yeah. 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 Um, and so so obviously to qualify, people had to have had this experience, right? So that's people have this experience. Um, what were what were you then looking for out of these? Um, you know, what were your key sort of things that you're pursuing with your study? Um, well, we addressed several hypotheses. Um, I probably won't go through each and every one of them now because there are so many, but we basically wanted to understand the predominant characteristics of the experiences and their variances. Uh, and we wanted to understand their well-being impacts, uh, both in the short and the long term. And we also wanted to understand whether there were any predicting factors to the experience, i.e. certain psychological traits that might enable the experience or might be correlated with the experience, rather. Yeah. And we found that um, in terms of well-being, we found that a majority, a vast majority, responded that the experience was perceived to be predominantly positive in both short and long term, but that the overall ex the experience was actually um, considered to be more positive in the long term compared to the short term for a majority of people, which implies that even after an initial negative or challenging experience, people still uh, perceive the experience to be predominantly positive. That's right. I remember from the paper there's there's a certain, say, around 10% who initially found the experience negative, but then uh -huh. the long term, when you went to the long term, it was only left a couple of percent that... that felt that way right the rest yeah good memory um yeah it was 90 90 or so percent uh perceived it to be a predominantly positive experience in the short term and then 98 percent for the long-term positive experience sorry yeah. so, um that was a really interesting uh sort of finding um um, so in terms of predictive variables, we found that, uh, well, first of all, that temporal lobe epilepsy or temporal lobe lobility uh, was a um, was heavily correlated with the intensity of the spontaneous spiritual right. awakening. Uh, temporal lobe lobility is basically, basically relates to the uh, ability or propensity for having epileptiform disturbances in the temporal lobes. 
And the temporal lobes in the brain are uh, related to memory, language processing, and emotion. Uh, and we found, yeah, a, a, the symptoms of epileptiform disturbances, which might be indicative of temporal lobe epilepsy, to be highly correlated with the intensity of experience, basically. Okay, now uh, I, have, I have a question about that because I there there are people um, I've heard people use that correlation in some ways as a kind of way to dismiss uh, mm -hmm. people that tend to have um, wanders experiences or you know mystical experiences of various kinds and and just kind of brush it off and say, well, people have that temporal lobe. Uh, well, they often use the term temporal lobe epilepsy. Um, you know that that's somehow correlated mm -hmm. and uh so i was curious that that is uh, a factor and and what that actually means like if is that is it a, is that a condition or is that a, a a state that anybody can have without knowing it this uh, or would people be aware that they have these um no i you know seizures? i think with temporal lobe epilepsy is not like tonic clonic seizures so you wouldn't necessarily it wouldn't be as evident as something that would send you into an, a fit yeah um and in terms of you know temporal epilepsy symptoms we're not saying i just want to be clear that i'm we're not we weren't able to measure temporal or we, we did not recruit people with temporal epilepsy and then look at their spiritual experiences so we're just we're talking about the uh, the symptoms that are often correlated with temporal lobe epilepsy, those symptoms or the, the, the more intense those symptoms seem to be, according to the questionnaires and the, the respondents, sorry, the, the questionnaires, um, the, the stronger the intensity of reported um, um, spiritual experiences or... Yeah, so basically there was a correlation between the spiritual experience, uh, the intensity of the spiritual experience, and the intensity of the reported um, temporal lobe lability symptoms, which may be symptomatic of temporal lobe epilepsy. Right. And what, what would be some temporal lobe lability symptoms other than uh, having spiritual experiences? Yeah. Well, I can't remember the questions exactly, but things like, uh, do you ever have episodes of just like blanking out or uh, periods of even absorption? So again, there's a correlation with absorption, absorption which I'll okay. come on to in a minute. Um, so things like that, you know, there were, there are a number, I think there were 72 questions related to it. So, right. yeah. um, but having said that, I think that, you know, even if we do investigate the sort of, um, predicting factors or psychological factors that might pre be able to predict these kinds of experiences, even if we do investigate them in a deeper level, including things like temp the relationship between temporal lobe epilepsy and spiritual experiences of varying sorts. That's not to say that we're, or at least not in my world at all, um, diminishing the experience to the neurobiology, you know, the neurobiology of it. Yes. Um, I it's still incredible, even if we were to have all the answers, which I don't think we will, at least not in the near future, as to what kind of the reasons why people have these experiences. It's more about what makes these experiences so special and what makes the changes associated with these experiences mm. so long lasting. Um, and why does it, 
why do most people who have these experiences, if not all, have this same feeling of interconnection, of oneness with something that transcends this reality as experienced with our five senses and our two eyes? You know? yes. uh, and that's fascinating to me. But of course, if we want to bring this uh, towards mainstream psychology and raise awareness, we do need to investigate the sort of neurobiological underpinnings and psychological underpinnings of these experiences. But that's not to dumb down or dim the experience in any way, shape or mm. form, at least from my perspective. It's just interesting. Yeah, yeah, it is. And look, and for me, it comes back to that that question before when we talked about energy and how that relates to, say, the neurochemistry and so on in the body. And, um, you know, if you have the paradigm, so say in my paradigm, for example, the way I, when I think about these things is that consciousness is... Um, you know, using the physical body, it's manifesting through the physical body rather than being created by the physical body. And so then uh, if there are relationships between, like if there is phenomena that we might call temporal lobe uh, lability or temporal lobe epilepsy, um, that may be a real phenomenon. There may be a real correlation there to how we manifest, but it raises the question of, you know, the rather than that being the causality for having altered states of consciousness, whether it is somehow the process of consciousness interacting with the body in that state and, again, with the different levels of energy frequency or something, you know, that that is having those impacts that can be measured in the body. Like, it's just not clear. I would say it's it's an open question as to... Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's happening. a question. Um, it's definitely, you know, what comes first. And also... The, again, these are just preliminary studies, so a lot more investigation needs to be had on the the causes and the predicting factors of these experiences. But still, you know, there was quite a significant correlation here. So, um, so yeah, it's, it warrants further investigation for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like you say, we don't know the direction of causality, um, and also correlation does not imply causation either, um, and. But yeah, we also did look, though, at uh, the population differences between uh, normal, so to speak, population. Uh, I don't like using that word in this framework because I think people who have spiritual experiences are normal in most cases. Um, but anyway, people who have not expressed having had a spiritual experience, we compared um, yeah, a, a normal population sample with those who have who have had a spontaneous spiritual awakening, so our sample, and we looked at each sample's uh, temporal lobe lability symptoms okay. next to each other, and we realized that there was, um, even in that sense, a really big difference between the distribution of the data, so the yeah. data distribution in both samples. Um, so those in our samples in our sample reported far greater temporal lobe ability traits compared to a, a non-spiritual, yeah. so it is within inverted commas, yeah. um, which we found to be really interesting. Yeah, that is interesting, yeah. And then there was the absorption um, factor or something. The yeah, predictive variable, yeah. So absorption, trait absorption, which is the um, ability to or the pr propensity for um, just being engrossed, uh, I'm saying this in a, in a very sort of basic way, being engrossed in something without effort or control. So the ability to focus on something without intention. Um, 
or control, that seemed to be a predictive factor to the spontaneous spiritual awakening experience, i.e. the greater the reported absorption, the greater the um, reported spontaneous spiritual awakening experience intensity. So that was also really, really cool. Um, And this is in line with uh, studies on psychedelics who also look at uh, trait absorption as a potential predicting factor to the intensity of the mystical experience mediated by psychedelic drugs. So it's in line with existing studies on mystical experiences. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Now, the other thing I found very interesting in your your paper was the number of... um, I'm not sure what the technical term is, but like research uh, uh, tools that you had at your disposal. So you refer to the non-dual embodiment thematic inventory, the Kundalini awakening scale, the 30-item mystical experience questionnaire, the 11-dimensional altered states of consciousness rating scale, um, the modified telegen absorption scale, and um, then the Iowa interview for partial seizure, like symptom scale. So I guess the last two uh, relate to what we just talked about. Um, but I was very curious and intrigued by these other these other scales, um, which I assume uh, have been developed by psychologists doing research in this space. They're somehow accepted in within the discipline as measuring tools. Yeah, measuring tools for yeah to to so tools to measure. Uh, varying levels of yeah altered states of consciousness and and mystical experiences that they're very well established um particularly the 11 dimensional altered states of consciousness rating scale i don't know if i really name that the 11d asc and the meq 30 they are very uh, often used in things like psychedelic studies um and they're also used to measure um spiritual experiences mediated by spiritual contemplative practices so uh, yeah, they're they're quite well established in the world of psychology, uh, even though not many psychologists actually use them. <laughs> yes, yeah. No, but it was really interesting to see that and to think, wow, there's actually because I guess for you know for most of us, um, most people that have these experiences, it's a very personal thing, as you say, it's an ineffable thing. Often, um, you know, it can take us into all different life trajectories. But to kind of see that. Um, you know, it's studyable, it is explorable, and it can be categorized, and we can create meaningful data sets about it. So I think that's a really important thing to understand. Totally, and I think we need to treat these experiences as just as we do other experiences. You know, we measure a number of other psychological traits in psychology. So why exclude the study of consciousness um, through a psychological or neuroscientific lens? I mean, it is possible it's just I feel like there has been a uh, a bias towards the 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 uh, I don't know the, a bias towards scientism in many ways. So I think people involved in science, um, first of all, may not necessarily know that these experiences exist, so are not that likely to ever want to explore um, them from with the tools that they have, but. Um, yeah, there's also usually been, I mean, things are changing now, but in science, uh, while science is a wonderful tool, I think it's it's often been misused or not been flexible enough to study 
altered states of consciousness um, just purely because people don't believe that altered states are a, a real thing. You know, they think that they're, they're hallucinations and whatnot. And actually, they seem to be very conducive to, you know, they seem to be conducive to very uh, beneficial states of well-being as well. So I think they really do warrant, um, yeah, further investigation um, and uh and I think we need to shift away from this uh, typical bias that we find in, in all forms of science. Science is wonderful, but yeah, we sort of need to shift towards a, a greater understanding of, of human existence and of, of life. Yeah, look, I absolutely agree. And, um, you know, as we talked about before we started recording, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm an anthropologist myself and I found it. So I started my meditation practice while I was in my first year at uni and then um, throughout university was very drawn to the studies of shamanism and different kinds of ritual practices and a lot of altered states of consciousness from other cultures. And I met quite a lot of resistance by a number of my lecturers when I tried to write about them or explore them in, in ways that took them at face value and that accepted that when people talked about connecting with ancestors, for example, then that is what they were doing, right, rather than it being symbols or metaphors or that sort of thing. And and I think this would be a good point for you to, you mentioned the word scientism. It'd be nice to just briefly elaborate on what you mean by that. And also um, maybe you could just explain your work in trying to um, create some alternative ways of talking about it within the scientific um, field. Mm. I mean, you know, I don't have a, a proper definition in front of me of, of what scientism mean, but, means, but essentially it is the, it's the, it's the way, it's the mindset, I would say, that many scientists have towards, you know, reported transpersonal experiences or even paranormal type experiences or psi experiences. It's this default uh, rejection of any such experience that falls outside the brackets of materialism or what we can experience or what we can explain with our, you know, with the tools that we have, i.e. science and the five senses that we have and the two eyes that we have and the brain that we have. So it's basically a, um, an inability to, to flex the mind to encompass big ideas that perhaps we haven't yet explored scientifically, but that might exist, might, that might be able to, to tell us a lot about the world that we live in and, mm. and the existence that we're living. And that we that might be able to explore scientifically, right? Because I, I, I find quite often um, I hear people say things like, I don't know, life after death or, or, or these kinds of altered states of consciousness. Oh, well, you know, that's just, that's just not the realm of science or we can't understand. How can we scientifically make sense of past life experiences? And it's like a, a, um, a predetermined sort of, writing it off as it's not possible right as as though somehow there's something about it that is beyond the realm of of um the rational whereas yeah. i think that just means that our framework isn't wide enough that is, it's, yeah. yeah no exactly and what's interesting is that actually science is based on creativity it's based on new ideas and new ways of thinking and that's what pushes people towards investigation right 
But uh, for some reason, these experiences are often dismissed within science. And uh, yeah, I think it's really time to shift that narrative and to expand the narrative of science. And, you know, having said that, I think many scientists, I mean, at least the scientists that I'm involved in, uh, involved with, um, are open to exploring these alternate ways of existing or of experiencing. Um, so there are people out there. I think it's just, it's still very much tabooed within the scientific community or scientific, certain scientific communities. And so when something is tabooed, then people do not express themselves authentically or, or feel that they're not able to because they're afraid of losing their jobs, for instance. And so they keep it within. So there are many, many scientists out there. And like I say, I've met hundreds of scientists who feel the same way as I do. And yet they're not able to ex express this within their, their work um, workspace mm. and their colleagues. And so uh, that sort of perpetuates this constant, like, you know, the, the, the this this same narrative gets kind of spewed over and over again within science because people are just not do not feel comfortable enough to speak up and speak out against uh, this dogmatic scientific framework. So yeah. just just to uh, you know to to reinstate my feeling is that it's not about being against science in any way. Science is a fantastic tool. Um, it's what has helped us develop so much. And it's, it's just, it's a wonderful tool in many, many respects. It's just the, the mindset that often accompanies science um, or scientists. Well, yeah. And the irony is that when, when that mindset creeps in, it actually is anti-scientific, right? Because it stops people from really investigating and inquiring and being open to reviewing their held beliefs and, and what they just assume, their assumptions. Exactly. And it's so it's so important also to listen to individuals' subjective experiences um, in order to sort of, you know, also just be humble and, and open our minds up to the possibility of, of other, you know, realms, let's say. I say I use the word realms, maybe that's not the best word, um, but yes, other ways of perceiving life and of existing. Yeah, so maybe because you mentioned the Galileo program, I think. Could you just tell people a little bit about what that is? You mentioned that yeah, before we started recording. Yeah, sure. Um, the Galileo Co Commission, um, so I'm on the steering committee with them, and um, basically it's all about expanding um, scientific inquiry to encompass these kinds of experiences. So it's about encourage, encouraging scientists and non-scientists and also academics from different parts, so anthropologists um, and so on, you know, getting people involved in, in our community uh, in order to, A, speak up about the, the possibility of these experiences um, and their scientific inquiry and about, about trying to encourage universities and professors and academics to open up their minds to, to these possibilities. So, yeah. And it's also about expanding the humanities as well. The, it's, it's about, we, we're calling at the moment for a renaissance in the humanities. Mm. Um, for instance, in philosophy, we tend to focus on specific philosophers and, and, and we sort of follow what they say without really thinking. And that's also a form of dogma. And actually we're calling for a sort of more open-mindedness around 
ideas of philosophy and existence and existentialism and and uh yeah yeah and, that's and is the is the galileo commission um is it kind of a, an, an NGO or somehow, how, how is it constituted? Is it across different universities, um, yeah. not linked to the academy? Or? Yeah, it's a charity organization and we're independent, um, but we are heavily affiliated with the Scientific and Medical Network, which is also a charity organization um, aimed to raise awareness around these kinds of experiences through uh, educational programs and webinars and conferences. Um, but we also work with, you know, different universities around the world and different scientists. I mean, we have a, an array of different um, affiliates with the Galileo Commission. You know, people like, um, I, I mean, David Bohm, for example, the great mathematician um, you know, of, our, of our times, um, or slightly previous times than mine, but uh, he was an affiliate of the Scientific and Medical Network and would have been heavily aligned with the Galileo Commission's mission um and then other you know great mathematicians and physicists are all i mean you can find it on our website you can see who actually belongs to mm. to the, and it's it's actually phenomenal how many uh, you know not that it's of importance really but how many famous people who are not necessarily overtly um interested in these experiences or in consciousness studies uh, are belong to the Galileo Commission and are affiliates and advisors to the Galileo Commission. So it's, it really is a thriving scientific community uh, and it's a wonderful space for people to gather and, mm. and network and maybe collaborate even on, on certain projects aiming to explore and expand the science of consciousness. Yeah, I find it really heartening to hear that that exists, you know. That's a really, really positive, positive news item. <laughs> Awesome. Well, you should join Kim because you're definitely up uh, up our alley, and I feel that we would be. Yeah, there's a nice synergy between the work that you do and the work that we do. Yeah, no, I'm very keen to look into it. Um, well, look, just in terms of wrapping up um, the conversation, uh, how would you describe the results? Is there sort of a summary you would give of the results of your initial research, acknowledging that it's very preliminary and and so on but what what would you say are two or three of the key findings um and i guess uh you know i gather we've already mentioned it's positive overwhelmingly positive experience for people do you think that there is is there anything in your finding that indicates that there are ways of um facilitating these experiences um that people can have them um yeah more widely is this something we can introduce in education or in any sort of a way so do you mean practical ways that people might be able to induce mm -hmm. altered without without and I, look i know i know um you know sam gandy who in fact recommended uh, me to talk with you um you know i know he's involved in research using psychedelics um yeah. in low doses to you know create experiences that people become more with his focus is on the the pro-environmental um yeah. in particular kind of focus yeah. uh and i know that's a budding thing right it's becoming seems to be bigger and bigger at the moment uh use of psychedelics use of breath work is from techniques are all expanding um i don't know if you have an angle uh, if this is anything in, in your research that suggests we can 
um, support people to have these experiences who might not want to, you know, use substances, for example? Well, I mean, yes, good questions. Um, well, first of all, I mean, yoga and meditation seem to be extremely conducive to these kinds of experiences. We wouldn't. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, you know, you could be practicing yoga or and or meditation for 50 years and you might not have an experience yeah. of the type. But that goes along with, you know, that's the same for any practice, including the use of psychotropic or, or mind altering substances. It's not always a given. You might have a mystical experience of some sort um, and it might be life changing in itself, but it it, it might not you might not experience that oneness or that connection with everything and everyone and that, that immense sense of, of limitless love, but it does happen. So yeah, frequently with, uh, with yoga and meditation, when I say frequently, I say frequently within these, these kinds of realms, but, um, yeah, uh, uh, an engagement with spiritual literature seems to be quite conducive to altered states and, and, experiences of oneness to some degree or, or another so opening people's minds up to different concepts uh, you know uh, philosophical concepts um and ideas of the world um what was really interesting actually in our study and this has been supported by a couple of other studies um that have taken place recently and it, i am not suggesting this as a as a means of reaching a spontaneous awakening experience but what was most commonly reported actually as a preceding factor to the experience, and this was reported by over 50% of our participants, was a prolonged period of psychological turmoil or trauma. So mm. bereavement, uh, addiction, uh, loss, um, imprisonment even. So whilst this kind of goes off on a tangent because you asked me what people could practice in order to attain these states, yeah. and I, again, encourage people to go through periods of extreme trauma or tunnel but it does give hope to people who are currently undergoing perhaps um you know really difficult states of states of mind and that's not to say that they will have that experience but no. yeah to see how uh when there is a loss of of a typical ego way of existing yeah. or a sense of self within our environment or uh within our interpersonal relationships when there's that kind of loss and there's there is also room for for a new sense of self to grow out from. Yeah, yeah, that's a really I feel it's a really important point. And it's a topic that I've been it's sort of been on my my mind quite a bit recently. Is that relationship between suffering in life and yeah. and growth, and how it seems almost inevitable that, uh, that you know suffering seems inevitable in in human life, um, but it also seems to be such an important part of for us to 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 grow in all different ways, including through those kinds of experiences. Yeah, totally. Mm. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Jessica. That was a really interesting, um, it's really interesting research. And I'm curious, is there anything like what are you working on now? What are you? What's the next step for you? Yeah. Um, thank you, Kim. Yeah, it's been it's been really wonderful speaking with you. Um, yeah, and so in terms of future projects, I'm currently um, working on a project uh, looking at uh, release from addiction post-spiritual or spontaneous spiritual awakening experience. And this kind of arose from um, a number of interviews. I mean, I conducted dozens and dozens of interviews for the research 
um, paper that I then published without the interviews. Uh, but I've now got, a, you know, a bunch of interviews uh, exploring the, you know, experience in more depth, the phenomenology in more depth. Um, and what I came across several times in my research and um, with these interviews were people who described, again, this intense period of psychological turmoil, um, in these cases more pertinent to addiction. So people who were addic addicted to drugs and alcohol um, before their experience and then who had a spontaneous spiritual awakening and who suddenly felt there was no more need or no more attachment towards these substances. So. This is something that I'm now investigating um, with who I think I mentioned earlier um, because he also found the same thing in his set of researchers. Um, so he, he came across a number of people who also reported this. So it's definitely warrants more, mm. again, investigation and more research. And what's really cool about this is that, you know, you may know that certain psychedelic drugs are now being used or are being investigated for their potential to heal people with addictions. Uh, so, you know, um, ayahuasca is being mm -hmm. used in treatment. Um, Burger, I think, has been used for a while. Exactly. And so there is definitely a correlation between uh, or an association between mystical experiences. Near-death experiences, right? It's a common result from near-death experiences. There's just people... Um, exactly, exactly. With addictions. Exactly. So this is the, the next project. I'm also, you know, uh, undertaking another project with the EPRC, um, a research consortium that I'm, I, I'm a part of that I collaborate with. And we're looking at, at, broadly speaking, the overlaps between mental, certain mental health disorders and uh, spontaneous awakening, or, or sorry, spiritual awakenings and other spiritually transformative experiences more generally. So not just spontaneous, but a number of other mystical type experiences um mm. but that's that's a uh, you know we don't exactly know what the research questions are yet but that's basically broadly speaking what we're going to be investigating yeah that sounds lovely i look forward to um finding out you know what you come up with in the next few years in your work and if people wanted to reach you in some way people maybe have experiences to share that sort of thing i don't know if you're interested in hearing from people Oh yeah, I, I am. I really am. Um, it's always useful to, you know, connect, not just useful. It's, it's often very heartwarming and inspiring to connect with other people who've had similar type experiences or other forms of spiritually, um, impactful experiences. So if you have had an experience of the sort and you'd like to get in touch for future research, or if you uh, just want to share something with me, then feel free to contact me at, uh, Jessica Corneille at gmail.com. So we'll probably put a I'll link put somewhere. Yeah, I'll put the link in the show notes. Yep. First and surname uh, at gmail.com. Um, I'm very bad at technology stuff um, in the sense that I still need to create a website and everyone's asking me for it, but I will create a website at some point and then maybe we can add it here as well. <laughs> <laughs> Contact me on that. that sounds good. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Jessica. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. It was great chatting to you. If you enjoyed today's conversation as much as I did, please take a few moments to leave a positive review on Apple Podcast and share it on social media to help others find it. 
You can find more information about today's guests in the show notes for this episode, including any links to their work and their contact details. This podcast is a labor of love. If you want to support me and get some practical info for your own exploration of consciousness, you can purchase my book, Multidimensional Evolution, from Amazon and other online bookshops. Or if you want to support your local bookstore, which I encourage, you will have to order it in. You can check out my blog on multidimensionalevolution.com, where I write about all kinds of topics relating to multidimensionality and our evolution um, that just pique my interest at different times. Finally, get in touch via email or on the Multidimensional Evolution Facebook page. Whether it is to ask questions, share experiences, or suggest guests and topics, I always love hearing from people, as I believe it is through sharing with each other that we can all grow together. Until then, or until you tune in again, I'm sending you my very best energies. The tune seeing us out is called Akasha, from Finnish fusion artist Axel Tesla.